You are listening to the IFH Podcast Network. For more amazing filmmaking and screenwriting podcasts, just go to ifhpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to the Indie Film Hustle Podcast, episode number 669. Bet on yourself. Be your own lottery ticket. If no one else shows up, I know I will show up. Reese Witherspoon. Broadcasting from the back alley in Hollywood, it's the Indie Film Hustle Podcast, where we show you how to survive and thrive as an indie filmmaker in the jungles of the film biz. And here's your host, Alex Ferrari. Welcome, welcome to another episode of the Indie Film Hustle Podcast. I am your humble host, Alex Ferrari. Have you ever wanted to learn from a Hollywood blockbuster screenwriter or even an Oscar winner? Well, I wanted to put together a free three-day screenwriting video series taught by legendary screenwriters David Goyer, from, who wrote The Dark Knight, Nia Valdouras, who wrote The Big Fat Greek Wedding, Oscar-winning Callie Corey, who wrote Thelma and Louise, and Oscar winner Paul Haggis, who wrote Casino Royale. If you want access to this free class, head over to bulletproofscreenwriting.tv forward slash free. Today's show is also sponsored by Rise of the Film Entrepreneur, how to turn your independent film into a profitable business. It's harder today than ever before for independent filmmakers to make money with their films, from predatory film distributors ripping them off to huckster film aggregators who prey upon them. The odds are stacked against the indie filmmaker. The old distribution model of making money with your film is broken and there needs to be a change. The future of independent filmmaking is the entrepreneurial filmmaker or the film entrepreneur. In Rise of the Film Entrepreneur, I break down how to actually make money with your film projects and show you how to turn your indie film into a profitable business. With case studies examining successes and failures, this book shows you the step-by-step method to turn your passion into a profitable career. If you're making a feature film, series, or any other kind of video content, the Film Entrepreneur Method will set you up for success. The book is available in paperback, ebook, and of course, audiobook. If you want to order it, just head over to www.filmbizbook.com. That's filmbizbook.com. Now, guys, today on the show, we have screenwriter and best-selling author Matthew Bird. Now, Matthew is the author of The Secrets of Story, Innovative Tools for Perfecting Your Fiction and Captivating Readers. And I have to tell you, this was one of the more enjoyable interviews I've had on the show in quite some time. Matthew is a wealth of information and knowledge. I mean, he dropped so many knowledge bombs in this episode, it was hard for me to keep track. Uh, We really talk about structure, about dialogue, and some of his other theories in regards to story. And like I've said before, guys, I love bringing different points of views, different authors, uh, screenwriters, story uh, analysts, people that are looking at the same problem of how to tell a good story and looking at it from completely different angles. And Matthew Bird did not disappoint. His point of view is unique and I absolutely loved it. So hopefully it will ring true to you as well. So without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Matthew Bird. I'd like to welcome to the show Matthew Bird. Matt, how you doing, my friend? I'm fine. How are you? I'm good, man. Just living the quarantine life, sir. Living the quarantine life. <laughs> It is crazy. This is absolutely insane. It's it's hard to re, you have to remind you every well every morning. I've always had sort of apocalyptic dreams, and then I wake up in the morning and I'm like, oh, it's the apocalypse. It's the apocalypse. I'm like, oh no, it was a dream. I was just dreaming. It's my normal life. And now I've been waking up every morning, going like, oh, it's the apocalypse. Apocalypse. Like, no, that's just a dream. And I'm like, no, no, it's not. 
It's not a dream. This is no, real. No, it really it, is the apocalypse. It's really happening. I can't shake this one off. No, I heard the other day. It's like, can we put 2020 in a, in a, in a bowl of rice um, to, <laughs> to see if it could fix it or something? Because it's – I mean, this is an insane, insane year. Uh, and we're not even halfway through yet. So um, as of this recording. No. So let's buckle in. Let's see what happens. But, but we're here today to talk about story. And uh, I wanted to first, before we get into your book and and your concepts and what you teach, um, how did you get started uh, in the film industry? Because I think you had your origins in the film industry. Yeah, sure. I was always making films and I was, I considered myself sort of like a punk DIY filmmaker back in the day. Like, and I was always like working with the stuff that had just come out. So I worked with a little bit with Super 8 and then when DV, when mini DV came out, I was like, this is great. I can make, make a whole movie. I made a feature film. Well, no, first, that's not, that's not even true. First I made a feature film. That was the thing is I was always, I loved features. I never, I was like, ah, forget shorts. I'm going to put in the work. I made a feature on SVHS nice. when I was in high school or when I was in college. And then, uh, when I was out of college, I made a feature on mini DV and I shot it having no idea how I was going to edit it because there was no editing software at the time. Right. And then right as I finished production, they came out with Final Cut Pro 1.0. And I was like, I'm going to buy it the first day it hits the store. And I was part of that first community who had figured out this program, which was an insane program. <laughs> yeah. And then I made a feature there. And I was just doing I was doing whatever I could. And then eventually I was like, OK, it's time to get serious. I went to film school. I went to um Columbia University uh, Film School, and I spent a fortune, a mm -hmm. fortune that I did not have, a fortune that I may never have. I'm still paying off my loans, but I went ahead and I made some films there. <sighs> um, I shifted my focus there to screenwriting, which I think was wise. I won some awards. I was, you know, they they basically announced at the end of every year at Columbia, we are going to pick 10 students who we are going to push as, you know, people who were going to try to help get representation and sales and everything and the other 70 kids are cut loose <laughs> and they're like we're not gonna help you guys but we're gonna help these 10 kids so thankfully i was one of the 10 they you know i took a bunch of meetings in new york took a bunch of meetings in la got a very big deal manager uh was you know got just a few gigs i was hired to do an adaptation of a novel and that went okay i was i set up you know i in screenwriting, it's all about setting up like, oh, my God, I've had such success as a screenwriter. I've set up this project here and I've set up this project here and I've set up this project here and I'm working with this person and this person and this person. And people are like, oh, how much did you make? Oh, nothing. Yeah. It's, it's set up. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, no, no. The money, the money, that's all that's about to come. The money is being the money is being held back by a dam right in front of me. And but it's set up. So that means that there's cracks <laughs> in the dam and the whole thing is about to flood. And don't you worry. And then eventually I decided, you know, it wasn't the unsuccessful projects that killed me. It was the successful projects. It was the ones where I got paid. And I was like, I can't stand being treated the way I'm being treated. Mm -hmm. And I can't stand, uh, you know, just I just wasn't built for it. I just wasn't built for it. And then I started and then I got really sick. So that didn't help. And by the time I was better than all my heat was off me, I was no longer getting God. meetings. Mm -hmm. And I started a blog. And at first it was just a rewatching movies blog or an underrated movies blog. And then I couldn't. I eventually got to the point where it's like I was, you know, this is in the heyday of blogging in 2010. So it's like I have to watch a movie and blog about it every day. And eventually I'm like, this is going to kill me. 
And so I should start just giving writing advice as an excuse to give myself a day off. Like instead of doing something hard today, I'll just write some writing advice. And soon that just that just um, built up and built up and built up. And people were like, uh, Matt, all the stuff you've done in your life, this is this is your passion. This is what you're really good at. You're really good at giving writing advice. And you should listen to a book and you should do this and that. So soon I turned into a book. It was The Secrets of Story published by Writer's Digest. I started doing manuscript consultation. I started doing all that. And it became very big. You know, the book became an Amazon bestseller. It was, you know, I've now got the Secrets of Story podcast. I've got the Secrets of Story YouTube channel. And it's been wonderful. It's, you know, you never end up where you think you're going to end up, but this has turned out to be my passion. It's turned out to be what I'm good at. And uh, it's been great. It's been your your own hero's journey, if you will, sir. <laughs> it's been very much my hero's journey. I mean, if you, in my book, I talk about, you know, the great, I talk about stories about when I got sick and when, you know, it was, I found myself ironically living out these heroic narratives that I was learning about and trying to write about. And uh, it all wound up being deeply ironic, but I wound up uh, coming out on top. So well, maybe not on top, but I came out, you know, somewhere, somewhere above water, right above, above, above the water, water. above the water, yes. above the water. Now, in your book, you talk about the 13 laws of writing for strangers, which is a just a great writing for strangers is a great because that's what we do. Basically, screenwriters, you write for strangers, generally speaking, unless you're Chris Nolan. And even then, you're still writing for strangers because someone else is financing it. Um, so you have 13 laws. Can you talk a little bit about a few of them? Yeah. Let me see. Um, oh, I don't, you know, I wrote this book five years ago. Who knows what the laws were? Okay. So the number one law of screenwriting, uh, well, I should say, no, the number one law of story, this is for all kinds of story writers, is you must write for an audience, not just yourself. Because I think a lot of people, I think the worst piece of advice people get is like, oh, you know, tell a story that you love and then it'll be a great story. It's like, I don't know about you, but when I was a screenwriter, <laughs> I loved all my stories. Like it was that was a very low bar trying to get a, write a story that I loved. I would write it, I would love it, I would send it out into the world, <laughs> and eventually I realized, like, oh right, I'm not just writing for myself. I'm writing for other people. I am writing for strangers, and I have to figure out what a stranger wants. And guess what? Strangers have a lot higher standards than you have for yourself. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And some people are really, really hard on themselves. And they're like, you know, uh, you know, like Miles Davis had a quote, something like, you know, like I, I'm the toughest audience there could possibly be. So I, if I can please myself, I know it must be great, but I'm not Miles Davis. And I was that hard on myself. And it was only when I realized, okay, I'm writing for strangers. I'm writing an audience, writing for an audience, not just for myself. One number two is audiences purchase your work based on the concept, but they embrace it because of your characters. I think this is, you know, we tend to overvalue a hot concept, a high concept. We're like, oh, I've got a high concept. It's going to sell itself. It's going to write itself. Like, no, it never writes itself. And it's probably not going to sell itself either. Like, yes, people are going to want to hear you have a high concept. They're like, they're like that's great. You got a high concept. Now let me read it. And then as soon as they read it, they do not care about the high concept. They do not care about any of your big ideas, about your big concept. All people care about, and they're going to give you five pages. And they're going to read five pages of what you wrote. And they're like, do I fall in love with this character? And if you do fall in love with the character, and then you never get around to delivering that high concept, you promise, they won't even notice. 
that are like, oh, I don't really care about concept anymore. Give me a character I love. I'll go anywhere with him. Give me a character I don't love. Forget it. Even if it's the best, hottest, most wonderful idea in the world, forget it. I'm not going to read it. So that's law number two. Law number three, audiences will always choose one character to be their hero. I feel like this is, you know, people a lot of times are like, well, you know, you think one person's a hero for the first 10 pages, and then I kill him off. And then you're going to think that someone else is the hero for the next 30 pages. And then you realize, no, no, it's really that person in the background. Now, of course, you can always think of exceptions. Alien is the ultimate exception. You have no idea who the hero of Alien is until you're about 40 minutes into that movie. Right. And suddenly you're like, wait a second, that woman in the background, she's the hero of the story? Like, I thought the hero was Tom Skerritt, who just got killed off. But that is a huge exception. <laughs> and right. usually you're going to want to convince, you know, you're, the hardest part of writing is getting people to go like, I am invested in this character and I'm going to follow this character through the whole story. And if you want to write Alien, that's fine. If you want to convince people to invest in one character and then kill that character off and then go like, no, 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 I'm going to convince you to care about a whole other character. You can try it, but it doesn't tend to work. It's it's nope. funny. It's funny when you were saying – when you were talking about like going with a character on a ride, you, re, you watch uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark and you're introduced to Indy and I, if I remember, there was – no dialogue or like a minimal dialogue all throughout that first part up all up until almost none. almost none. I think he had maybe one or two lines and that was it until the, until the boulder came down. And after that sequence, you, you were in like, you have yeah. no idea his backstory. You have no idea what he, like, all you know is like, I, I, wherever he goes, I want to follow him. Cause yeah. this is awesome. <laughs> Because he's doing awesome stuff. He's got a whip. I mean, how can you not love <laughs> I mean, somebody who has a whip? A whip. He, he has uses a whip. the whip for all kinds of stuff. And then he gets <laughs> – he does awesome stuff, but he fails and he gets humiliated. It's not about him being an awesome badass. You know, it's not like, hey, you know, here I am with the idol and that proves how awesome I am. I just recovered this idol. No, nope. we love him because he does all this awesome stuff to get the idol and then fails to get the idol. And he fails in a way that prefigures the whole movie. What – I mean – First foremost, how does he really fail? He fails because he's like, well, I've got an idol and then I've got a bag of sand and the bag of sand and the idol weigh the exact same amount. So if I switch out the idol for the bag of sand, they're the same thing. And of course, what's he doing is he does not realize the power of faith. He does not realize that, you know, there is a religious value to this idol that the bag of sand does not have. And because he is blind to the religious value, he almost gets killed. He almost gets run over by a boulder because he does, cannot tell the difference between a religious idol and a bag of sand. And then that takes you right through the end of the movie where it's like he finally at the end of the movie, he says, close your eyes, Marion, because he realizes that, you know, oh, this isn't just the ark. It's not just a bag of sand. The ark is a religious thing. And now God is going to rain vengeance down and melt that guy's skin and turn it into milk. And that yes. is uh, that is it's one of the most brilliant openings of a movie ever. Yes, without question. Let's see. So let's see. Law number four, audiences don't care about stories. They only care about characters. Law number five, the best way to introduce every element of your story is from your hero's point of view. Again, lots of exceptions. Mm -hmm. I love the exceptions. Some of my favorite movies are exceptions. But man, if you can just get people to care about your hero, then we'll care about what your hero cares about. And if we don't care about your hero, or if your hero doesn't care about the story, that's <laughs> One of the worst mistakes you can make is like, oh, you know, my hero has a lot of ennui and he is not invested in the story. The story is sort of going on over his shoulder. We're sort of peeking around his head going like, hey, mm -hmm. hero, is, there's a whole story going 
I'm back there. Pay attention to it, and the hero doesn't care. It's the worst. Uh, well, number six, it's very hard to get audiences to care about any hero because they're afraid of getting hurt. I think this is this was one of the big ones for me when I realized this. It's that audiences, if you were writing the very first story anyone had ever written, if you were a caveman and you're like, I've just invented this concept of storytelling, people would go like, oh, well, that's fascinating. Tell me more. But as it is, people have spent their whole lives reading books, watching movies, and most of them have been bad. And yeah. every time people read a bad book or watch a bad movie, then it hurts. It's painful to read a bad book. It's painful to watch a bad movie because the, a story asks you to care. A story asks you to invest your emotion. Now, a story is not just something that you passively stare at. You're not just sitting in the theater going like, well, I can look at any one of these four walls, but I'm going to have to look at the wall that has the pictures moving on it. You are getting sucked in. You are being asked to care. And usually you're being asked to care about a useless hero going on an uninteresting story. And, you know, I wouldn't say most of the time, but a tremendous amount of the time, a tremendous amount of stories are bad. And what do you say when you see a bad movie or read a bad book? You say, well, I'm never doing that again. You say, I was tricked into caring about this hero, and then he turned out not to be worth caring about, so I'm not going to care again. So every time you write a book or you write a screenplay or you make a movie, then your audience is people going to be like, first of all, I know this is all lies. You're not going to trick me into thinking this is a real person, right. and then you're not going to get me to care. There's no way I'm going to care about this person because you're just going to hurt me. I'm, I don't want to be hurt again. And so that is a huge hurdle you have to overcome is realizing that getting the audience to care is going to be the hardest thing in the world. Mm -hmm. Number seven is your audience need not always sympathize with your hero, but they must always empathize with your hero. So I talk about how like, you know, we, when we were in film school, it was like the heyday of Mad Men and the Sopranos and Breaking Bad. And they were like, oh, these heroes aren't sympathetic. So that means these are successful heroes and they aren't sympathetic. So that means you no longer have to write sympathetic heroes anymore. So that means you can just write about anybody and you can write any story you want to do. And they can just be the most loathsome hero in the world. And people have no choice now. They have to care about it. The, the whole rules have been thrown out the window. Mm. We did not realize how hard these writers were working. First of all, we did not realize that all of these writers had gotten their starts on shows where you cared very much, where the hero was very sympathetic. So for instance, they, you know, uh, um, uh, David Chase, who created The Sopranos, he had gotten a start as a writer on The Rockford Files. There has never been a more lovable hero in the history of TV than mm -hmm. Jim Rockford on The Rockford Files. And so he knew he was not somebody coming along going like, well, gee, I don't know how to create a sympathetic hero, so I'd better create a, you know, I'd better create Tony Soprano instead and create an unsympathetic hero and, you know, hopefully people will like him. No, he knew how to create sympathetic heroes and he knew how to get us to love Tony Soprano, even though he was an awful guy. And he knew it was because we wouldn't sympathize with him, but we would empathize with him. We would deeply empathize with him. And that's why your story about a sympathetic hero, that's why people are saying, oh, I hate your story because it's an unsympathetic hero. And you're like, but but what about all these unsympathetic heroes out there who are great heroes? What they're really mean to say is not that they can't sympathize with your hero. They're saying, I can't empathize with your hero. And that is death. That is, you can have the least sympathetic hero in the world, but if we can't empathize with him or her, forget it. So then you look at a character, like which, which arguably, I, I think is arguably one of the best television shows of all time is Breaking Bad with Walter yeah. White. I mean, his transformation from like, like, um, Oh God, I forgot. Gillian, Vince Gilligan said is like as Mr. Chips turns into Scarface. And, yeah. and you know, when I started watching that show, 
it, it's it just you see him slowly turn into a monster, but yet he turned into a monster for the like when he started the journey, it was for kind of the right reasons. Kind of, it's oh, a yeah. gray area, if you would to say, to sell meth, but I get it. I get it. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. But then afterwards, it stopped being about that. And it's, it was all about his own ego. And he literally turned into a monster. But yeah. yet, you still were empathetic with him. Like, it was so oh. brilliantly written and performed as well. Yeah, if they had, I don't, I don't know if they had gotten. They originally offered the show to both Matthew Broderick and John Cusack, and I don't know if Broderick or Cusack could have pulled it off. I don't know mm. if we would have, you know, we would have cared as much about uh, Matthew Broderick or John Cusack if they had gone on that journey. It was really, it was all about, you know, don't get me wrong. Vince Gilligan's scripts were amazing. They were mm. insane. They were brilliant. And Better Call Saul is still brilliant. I'm, I'm watching yeah. the most recent season of that right now. But you know, Brian Cranston. Come on, oh, Brian Cranston. I mean, so good on that show. He made that show. He was amazing on that show. And uh, it was so good. But no, I mean, you know, I mean, if Walter White had not been sick, you know, if he had not been, you know, it was so important that he had been sick. It was so important that he had been screwed out of his previous job. I think that, you know, the best motivation, it's like how, first of all, once, you know, it got to the point where Walter White had made an insane amount of money. And, you know, obviously it got harder to empathize with him as the show went on because he had lost. He was no longer sick. First of all, he had he was no longer conceivably doing this for his family because his family now was, you know, his wife had found out and hated him for doing it. So, you know, in order to make his wife happy, that wasn't it. But the the real I think the hidden motivation on that show that made it uh, that didn't justify but strongly motivated all his actions is that he felt he had been cheated out of a billion dollars. He felt that when he had been forced out of his right. company, right, that he had, uh, I think Gray Matter was the name of the company, and he he felt like he had this burning resentment inside him from feeling like I was part of a billion-dollar startup, and then I was forced out, and I was cheated out of this money. And so that gave him the bottomless pit because, uh, you know, in the end, the illness wasn't a bottomless pit. The you know, trying to trying to satisfy his family wasn't bottomless pit. It was that resentment of feeling like I and I think so many of us feel that way. So many of us have like, you know, like that was my fortune. You've got my fortune right now. We all have that person we know who made it when we didn't make it and who who cheated us out of the thing. And it was I think that is one of the most underrated or uh, underrecognized elements of that show of why people love that show so much. Yeah, and and it's still it's still going it's still going and it will go on and 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 it ended it it had a beautiful one of the most beautiful endings to a show ever so yeah. brilliantly brilliantly done did you happen to see the Colombian version of of Breaking Bad No, there's a Colombian version. There is a they literally took the scripts and just translated them into Spanish, and and they licensed oh, okay. it. And they licensed it to a Colombian set of actors and they did everything down there in Colombia. And it's a telenovela, basically. They made it into a telenovela. If you want, if you can get a, just, if you, if anyone out there, if you can send it to us, it's somewhere online. Uh, Brian well, Cranston, he saw it. One of my he, favorite TV shows, uh-huh. one of my favorite TV shows of all time is Slings and Arrows about life in a Canadian Shakespeare festival, which doesn't <laughs> sound like it would be a great show, but it is. <laughs> 
And then I found out that uh, the director of City of God yeah. made and um, and oh, and he just made another film that was really great. Um, uh, but the director of City of God made a Brazilian version of Slings and Arrows. So in this case, it was life of, about life in a Brazilian Shakespeare festival. And that's like my holy grail of stuff I want to find. I want to find the Brazilian <laughs> version of. Oh, and he just made the two popes. Um, oh, so yeah. I was watching the two popes. And Two Popes was brilliant. I loved that movie. And I was like, oh, man, this guy made his own version of Slings and Arrows. That's what I really want to find. <laughs> I don't know if anybody has even dubbed it. And I do not speak Portuguese. Right. So uh, how committed are you, sir? Will you learn Portuguese just to watch this <laughs> is the question. <laughs> well, that's what Pete Buttigieg did, right? Pete Buttigieg taught himself Norwegian because he was reading a book series that was translated from Norwegian. And then the final books were not translated from Norwegian. So he taught himself Norwegian just to read the book series. God bless him. God bless. Him. God bless. Him. <laughs> um, we'll see where he ends up. Yeah, exactly. Um, so let me ask you a question. So yeah, I don't. I don't want you to give all your thirteen laws away. I want somebody okay. to actually buy the book. But um, yes. what is your process for coming up for an intriguing concept for a story? Well, I think that you know. I don't always agree with Blake Snyder, but I think Blake Snyder, you know, was right on the money when he talked about the importance of irony. That, you know, it's got to be, you know, a school teacher cooks meth, you know, not a drug lord cooks meth, you know, not the son of a drug lord cooks meth, son of a drug lord cooks meth, not a story. School teacher cooks meth. That's a story. There's got to be an ironic element to it. I talk that's about on my blog, I've got a whole series of how to generate a story idea. And, you know, I talk about, for instance, there's all sorts of ways into it. Like one way, you know, one of the ways to generate a story idea is you've always thought, gee, the thing you've always wanted to do, but you know you would never do. So it can be the science fiction version of that is eternal sunshine of the spotless mind. Like, gee, I would, you know, I've gone through a bad breakup. I would really love to, if I could just have a machine that would wipe out all memories of this relationship from my head, then that would make me happy. And then you're like, but would that make me happy? And then boom, that's a story. You're off to the races. That's a great story. But it can also be a way to get a non-science fiction story. Like, you know, I've just gone through another bad breakup. <laughs> Lots of stories begin with bad breakups. I've just been through a bad breakup. And what if I track down every girl who's ever dumped me since elementary school and tracked down and made a list of the top five girls who've ever dumped me and tracked them down one by one and interview them about why they dumped me? Well, again, that's something that Nick Hornby did not do. I promise you he did not do that. I promise you that no one has ever actually done that. But it's something we've all thought about doing. Like, oh, wouldn't that be? And boom, that's a story. That got turned into the novel uh, High Fidelity and then the movie High Fidelity and then the TV series High Fidelity. And that's, you know, a, that's essentially he's doing the same thing that Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind did, going like, you know, what's, what's an idea I had? Of course, I feel like the best way to probably create a story these days, if you want to create something big, if you want to create a big sale, I talk about The Hunger Games, how she was reading about the legend of Theseus. And all of it, all of The Hunger Games is in the legend of Theseus so that they were like, you know, oh, we've got an empire. We're ruling over all these kingdoms. Once a year, we're going to have all the kingdoms send, uh, you know, their beautiful young people to and then we're going to put them in this labyrinth and we're going to force them to compete. And this will be a way to, you know, to show them that we have conquered them and that, you know, we could kill them all at any times, but instead we'll just kill their two most beautiful kids um, and force them to fight to the death just to show our power. And she was like, well, she could have done three things. She could have said, 
okay, well, let me just, you know, this is IP. Theseus is IP. Why don't I just go back? And it's it's the best kind of IP. It's IP that's in the public domain. I can just write a book about Theseus. But then she was like, but, you know, then first of all, you would, she wouldn't really own it because anyone can write a book about Theseus. So she's like, well, what's a version of Theseus I can own? And I could set it in modern day. But that would be kind of a stretch. <laughs> She's like, you know what? what? You know what? We're not too far away. I would have said that. <laughs> yes, too far away. Give I would have. Year. I would have said that a few so. years ago. But now, nah, what what you thought was impossible is not possible, <laughs> sir. So don't don't We're throw it out. There. <laughs> but uh, then she was like, "Why don't I make this the post-apocalyptic version?" And all she did was take an existing story. All she did was take existing IP. And she was able to make that into a billion dollar franchise for herself. I don't know. Does Suzanne Collins have a billion dollars? She's bound to have a billion dollars by now, right? Probably, she's yeah, got, yeah, between a couple of t-shirts, know. I think she's she's done okay. So basically she just took <laughs> she just basically took Hamlet, let's say, and made it into a, a long series, something that's completely in the public domain, um, and just made an entire IP out of it. Yeah, she she took she took free IP. I mean, that's what Disney's been. I mean, you're talking about Hamlet. That's Lion King. Yeah, <laughs> what Disney's right. been doing for a long time is taking free IP and uh, and turning it into something they can then own and try to you know force everybody else to uh, you know try to they like to pluck things out of the public domain and then suddenly claim to own them, which is a neat trick. But uh, she that's what she did. She she took something in the public domain, plucked it out, made it hers, and made a fortune. You know, I talk about. But I talk about other things that aren't necessarily sci-fi related. I talk about the importance of a unique relationship. I talk about how, you know, you've got a bully and a boy, a boy who's being bullied. Well, that is a story we've seen a million times. But then the bully hires, but then the boy hires the meanest bully to protect him from the other bullies. Then that's the movie My Bodyguard. That is a unique relationship. We've I never lo- seen that. I love that movie. I love that movie so i can't believe you referred to that that's it was released in 1980 i remember watching it as a kid and i thought it was the most awesome freaking movie with matt dillon um is it with matt dillon adam baldwin yeah adam baldwin and matt dillon were the two big well they weren't big stars then but those were the stars oh god i can't believe you made a reference to that movie it's like one of my favorite (laughs) movies of all time i love that movie we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor And now back to the show. But that's, you know, we've seen both those characters yeah. many times. These aren't unique characters, but it's a unique relationship. We've never seen, you know, the, the weak kid hire the bully to be his bodyguard before. Or, you know, look at another high school movie like Election, you know, yeah. about a war between a girl running for student body president and her civics teacher. And it's like, OK, we've, you know, we've seen characters like this before, but man, that's a unique relationship. We have never seen that relationship before. Or, you know, I talk about Paper Moon, you know, a con man and his 11 year old accomplice who may or may not be his daughter. And it's like, OK, this is if you can, you know, you don't have to be science fiction. Obviously, a lot of my ideas, you know, it's like, OK, I mean, these days, generally, when people talk about high concept. They talk about science fiction. They're talking about like, OK, you know, here's a high concept idea. It's, you know, we've got it's a thousand years into the future. And it's like, whoa, 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 stop there. You can have, you know, I just say what the simplest high concept idea out there, the simplest high concept, you know, the, if a pure high concept is something where you put together two words and you sell it for a million dollars. And to me, the ultimate example of that is wedding crashers, Mm -hmm. two words, wedding crashers, boom, 
Done. Sale. <laughs> Make a movie. It's a funny idea. It makes you laugh. Like, oh, people who crash weddings. And you're like, oh, well, you know, you just you're instantly like, I can't wait to meet these guys. I can't wait to meet these guys who crash other people's weddings. Oh, and or, or what if not science fiction, not big budget, easy and easiest thing in the world to make. Yeah, it's like what if uh, what if dinosaurs uh, came back? We can bring dinosaurs back. That's done. Yeah. And we opened the park Which, around it. <laughs> And it's so funny that they've never really – there's never really been a dinosaurs rampaging through Manhattan movie. Isn't that strange? I mean Lost World, they did it – not in Manhattan, but they did he, They did come well, to – Well, of course, Spielberg, Spielberg loves the suburbs. So you know, Spielberg's yeah. like, if I'm going to have a T-Rex going through uh, America, I'm going to put him out in the suburbs. But it's really weird. I was working on an idea for a while. I never got it done, you know – Obviously, that may be one reason why it's harder to write than you think. But, you know, it always struck me in the Thor movies. We've never really had a, like, frost giants attack downtown Manhattan moment. No, but you know what? A lot, of thi- so a lot of things have attacked Manhattan over the years. I mean, we, <laughs> we're we good if it's between a giant Stay Puff Marshmallow Man, Godzilla. I mean – Manhattan's had its day. Don't get there's no lack of things attacking Manhattan over the course of movie history. I think we're okay. Um, but, but yes, I, I've never personally seen a dinosaur. I think Sharknado. I've never seen any of the movies, but I'm assuming there must have been a Sharknado in Manhattan at one point or not. Like that's a perfect thing. Sharknado. That sold. Sold. <laughs> So, so I, I love this. There's one little uh, meme that's on around going on social media. It's like, remember, when you think you had a bad idea, remember that one day, once there was a guy in a room who said, let's put sharks in tornadoes. Yep. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's that's it. And then and then seven movies later, how many of those movies have they oh made? Oh, my God. So much money they've made. It's ridiculous. <laughs> Um, so then how do you, so we were talking a little bit about characters with like Indiana Jones and, and Walter White, let's say, um, how do you write that enduring character, that character that, that just sticks with you like, like an indie, like, I mean, we could, we can analyze indie, we can analyze Han Solo if there's two, two Harrison Ford, uh, characters, um, two George Lucas and Harrison Ford you know, yeah, or, or any, you know, like these characters that you just like, oh. Like forever, I will be with this character. James Bond is another one of those characters that endures regardless of how he's trans- transformed over the course of his journey in history of filmmaking. So what do you, how do you do it? How, how do you write an enduring character? Well, what I talk about in the – I think the title of my next book, depending on how the publisher actually feels about it, will be Believe, Care, Invest. And I talk about how, like, you know, again, you've got – they're going to give you five pages, maybe ten pages when they read it. And what they're going to want to do in those five pages is they're going to want to believe, care, and invest. And they're going to want to say – you know, I was just talking on the next episode of my podcast about this, how, you know, Ray in Star Wars, Ray in The Force Awakens is a classic example of, like, right away we're seeing her. And her wife is so – strange her life is so filled with like she makes that bread that spherical bread so machine awesome. she's got yeah, whatever, awesome. that whatever that was and was awesome yeah that causes you to totally believe in this world because you're like okay that's so weird you couldn't make it up you know like okay this must be real this must be a real world like so any thought i had going in of like okay this is all going to be lies this is going to be fake button pushing manipulating character like okay no this this feels real and then they get you to care because the character is suffering. The character is being embarrassed. You know, in this case, she's living hand to mouth. She's living this very 
um, hard scrabble life. And then they get you to invest because she's taking care of herself and she is taking care of herself wonderfully. First, they show you that she is doing all she can to make all this money. She's doing all she can to work very hard and, you know, is like doing, going to, you know, we see her rappelling down into a destroyed Star Destroyer. We see her, see her going to these great lengths. And then you get to the point 10 minutes in where we've already seen her desperately trying to get money from the pawnbroker uh, or from the scrap dealer. And she'll do anything to get this money. And then she gets destroyed and the droid says, and finally the scrap dealer who she's always been trying to make this money off of said, that I'll pay a fortune for, I'll pay a fortune for BB-8. And she says, and then suddenly she says, I'm not selling. I'm not going to sell him. And, oh, my God, we love this character for life now, you know, because we've seen that she's we believe in her. We care about her. We've invested in her and we desperately want her to make that money. We at this point, we want her to make that money. We want her to be successful. And then she gets a higher calling. She says, no, this is about more than me. This is about bigger than me. This is about BP-8. I am going to not sell him. And like, what better example this could be? Or we talk about, you know, the Hunger Games, how like in the Hunger Games, you know, we talk about save the cat and, oh, it's so important. It's so important. You gotta have your character save a cat right away. And it almost, it's almost always a mistake to have your character save a cat because we don't identify that. We, I have never saved a cat. You have never saved a cat. It is a very rare thing to actually save a cat. That's not the sort of thing we see. And it's like, oh, that's just like me. I save cats all the time. <laughs> what is what is the first page of The Hunger Games? I think the second paragraph of The Hunger Games. She wakes up in the morning and she sees the family cat and she thinks, you know, I really ought to kill that cat. I almost killed that cat before. I tried to kill that cat before. I didn't succeed. I really ought to kill the family cat today. And then she decides not to kill it. So she sort of saves a cat, right? Because she almost kills it and then decides not to kill it. So that's one version of saving a cat. But then she leaves the house and she kills a different cat. Within five pages later, she sees a noble uh, mountain lion and she considers letting it live. And it's like, no, I'm going to kill it and cook it. And she does. And so it's like, this is the ultimate opposite of save the cat. This is like literally she almost kills the family cat and then does kill another cat. But we believe, we care, we invest. We believe in her life because it's filled with, you know, even just her story of almost killing the family cat. It's like, oh, well, that doesn't sound fake because that sounds like because no one would make that up to manipulate me because that makes me not like her. Like, OK, this must be real. And then we care so much because, oh, my God, she's poor enough where, you know, she would even consider that. And then we invest because what's the next thing she does? She goes up. Oh, there's an electric fence. I'm going to slip through the electric fence. I'm going to take out my bow and arrow and then I'm going to go hunt. And, oh, my God, like, we love her. But then, so we believe in her, we care about her, we invest in her. And then what happens on page 10 or page, I don't know, 25 or so is she is so good at looking out for number one and taking care of number one and making sure that she survives. She'll do anything to survive. And then she volunteers for the Hunger Games to save her sister. And she rises up above it. So we totally believe in her world. And then she rises up above it. And, oh, my God, we absolutely love her now. And now you're in. Now you're in, um, you know, it's James Bond is the perpetual exception. I just rewatched. I was all prepared. The new James Bond movie was supposed to come out. Right. Late, and I watched all 25 uh, James Bond movies. In wow. Preparation. Wow. <laughs> and then I was all set up. I was timing it exactly to the moment the movie came out. And then the movie was canceled. But James Bond is the perpetual exception. You know, certainly before Daniel Craig comes in, he never changes. He never learns. He never grows. He right. doesn't He doesn't really get humiliated. He does, though. Like, that's such a key element is your hero getting humiliated. And there are key moments. You know, if you look at Goldfinger, you know, he's 
he's, you know, could not be more suave. And when he blows up the tanker and then, you know, takes off his wetsuit and he's got on a tux underneath and then, but then he goes to the woman's house to have sex with her. And then it's, it's the most ludicrous thing in the world. He sees in reflected in the iris of her eye, someone coming up to kill him. And then that's a little bit of a moment of humiliation. You get just enough in the Bond movies of, okay, I, I identify he's this human. person because he's, human. he's getting a little bit of humiliation. He, and then, of course, he turns the girl so that she gets knocked on the head instead of himself because uh, he's despicable. Don't get me wrong. He is a despicable human being. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Yeah. And But he's the exception. You know, certainly you look at Indy. You look at Indiana Jones and, you know, instantly, right away, he misjudges the whole bag of sand situation. He gets betrayed by his assistant, Alfred Molina. He then has to run through the forest and then he gets forced on his knees uh, to hand over the idol to Belloc. And then and well, of course, he's also he's afraid of snakes. He hates snakes and he gets away and there is a snake in there. So this guy who was seemingly not afraid of anything is suddenly terrified of snakes. and. You know, he can do it. He's got the skills. He does amazing work. And yet he loses and yet he gets humiliated and yet he gets knocked down in a way that speaks not just to his interpersonal failings, but to his inner, his interpersonal failings into what is really wrong with his character. What is his depersonal flaw? It all speaks to it. We love him. We love him so much. That's what it's all about is, you know, you, you believe, care, invest, and then, you know, and then suddenly there's a moment where it kicks in. Suddenly there's a moment where you're like, wow, okay, now I'm really on board with this person. Well, you look at, you look like two characters like the, like Bond pre Daniel Craig. Cause I think, I think still Casino Royale is the best Bond movie ever yeah. in my, in my opinion. There's just, it's, it's, it's a masterpiece um, of, of the whole canon of, of James Bond. But um, you look at characters like Bond or Sherlock Holmes and they're both, basically superheroes in in many ways they they are godlike and they generally didn't change like you know sherlock yeah. generally never changed the people that changed were people around him like um uh, watson is kind of like the person who's learning the lessons along the way and we kind of identify with watson in that sense but sherlock never Sherlock's the same violin playing dude <laughs> from the beginning <laughs> to the end and same thing with the older bonds um so there are those kind of and, – and that's why I think it was so difficult to make a good Superman movie uh, other than the original Donner movies because you can't write for a god. It's hard. It's hard. That's why the Mountain Olympus, all of them were human basically. <laughs> all of them were – even though they were gods, they all had the same failings of humanity. So, um, well, it's interesting. Both Sherlock Holmes and James Bond are addicts, you know, like James right. Bond, they talk about it in the original movies. They talk about, you know, like, oh, you know, you've got liver problems right from right from the opening <laughs> movies. And, right. you know, they talk about, you know, people always act like, oh, you know, the Bond movies were set back in a time when it was great to be, you know, this swaggering dude who had all these things. It's like he gets criticized right away. You know, like he was seen as sort of a monster, like. Uh, mm -hmm. Sean Connery was perceived by the people around him in those early movies as being this sort of monstrous dude and who had serious flaws, who had serious problems. Yeah. 
And, you know, we go today like, oh, he was a womanizer and he was he drank too much and he smoked too much. And, oh, of course, back then when they made movies, they didn't even realize that was a problem. Like, no, they did. They realized that was a problem. And, of course, Sherlock Holmes was addicted to opium. He would inject himself. I mean, not opium. He would cocaine. He would inject himself with liquid cocaine and, you know, was a very troubled person. And in the in the stories. And I think that we tend to. Yeah, we tend to. live and we tend to think like, oh, there was this past where heroes were allowed to be perfect. But I mean, as you said, even with the gods, you know, the gods were, you know, in the Greek gods, the gods were very flawed. I mean, I think the oldest piece of literature that is still with us is Gilgamesh. Mm-hmm. And Gilgamesh, you know, could not you, you I dare you to find a screenwriting guru's book where anything in it does not apply to Gilgamesh. Like Gilgamesh could not be a more perfectly flawed hero. His journey could not fit modern story structures better. So you read Gilgamesh and you're like, wow, nothing has changed. Like nothing has changed. And the reason why nothing has changed is because good storytelling advice is based on human nature. It's based on what is the fundamental truth about what it's like to be a human, because that's what stories are about. Stories are about what is the fundamental truth about what does it mean to be a human in this world? And even if you go back to ancient Mesopotamia, even if you go back to, you know, 3,500 years BCE, it's human nature was the same. And you read Gilgamesh and you're like, oh my God, it's, it's, I, it may be my favorite book and it's the oldest book we've had. Yeah. And, and it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's similar to what we're dealing with today. It's a human condition just with less iPhones. (laughs) (laughs) Essentially. Exactly. Now structure is something that, uh, is talked at nauseum about in storytelling and specifically in screenwriting, it's like you need to follow this formula, the hero's journey, the three-act structure. At page this, you have to have that happen. At page that, that happens. What is your take on story structure in general? Well, you know, at, at first I was like, oh, all the other writing gurus have taken the, have covered that. It's fine. Everybody has their structure. I don't need my own structure. And then, of course, inevitably, you start giving writing advice and everybody, you always end up with your own structure. And every, you know, I sort of ended up with sort of 14 points where I started out. What what I realized about structure is that, you know, you have people, you have people like um, Robert McKee who are saying, well, you know, Here's Robert McKee. You are on a cruise. You have paid for the Robert McKee cruise, and I'm going to tell you what all good stories are like. And then somebody stands up in the back and they go, My story's not like that. And then Robert McKee can't tell them, Okay, leave the boat, swim home. Uh, my, my, my structure doesn't apply to you. He has to claim that all structures apply to him. So he talks about like the micropod and the mini pot and things like that. And that's what gurus tend to do is they drive themselves crazy trying to cover all the exceptions. I realized right away, I'm not going to try to cover all the exceptions. My structure only applies to stories about the solving of a large problem. So, I mean, the biggest problem you can have when you're trying to do structure is like, okay, all good movies are like this. And then someone says, Pulp Fiction. And you're like, crap. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Pulp Fiction does not have a modern structure. Pulp Fiction does not have a structure that matches the structure of any other movie. And because Pulp Fiction is not about the solving of a large problem, it is an ensemble film, it is about several different stories, it is, they overlap, the time is crazy, but if you're going to write, but I'm like, okay, you be you, you go off and be Pulp Fiction, you're brilliant, don't change, never change, but most stories are about an individual, an individual solving a large problem. 
my structure only applies to those stories. It's not going to apply to those others. And then I realized what story structure really is, is it is not a set of rules for that Aristotle or <clears throat> McKee or that anybody else has said, I'm going to dictate to you what the rules of story should be. It is merely an attempt to list the steps and missteps that people go through when solving a large problem in real life. So in human nature, we tend to go through a series of steps and missteps on the way to solving a large problem. And when you see a story and when somebody says, oh, the structure is not good on your story, they're not saying, oh, you know, you didn't read Blake Snyder and hit all his beats. What they're saying is that this story does not ring true to me. This story does not ring true to human nature to me. This does not feel like an identifiable, believable journey from becoming aware of a problem to solving that problem or to succumbing to the problem if the movie ends tragically. And that's what they really mean. So you can't just go like, well, I don't believe in your stupid structures guy. I don't, you know, I'm an I'm artist. Fiction. I'm, I'm an artist. I'm an artist. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm not doing paint by numbers, man. Then you're like, okay, that's fine. That's great that you're an artist and that's wonderful. But your story is not ringing true. And if you want to say, okay, you know, if you're writing, there will be blood or something. If you're writing something where it's like, okay, this is about a strange person who is not interested in being your hero, who is not interested in doing that, that's fine. You know, if this is not something where it's like, I'm going to invest in this person and hope this person solves all their problems, then that's fine. But if you are, and you probably are, then you will need to follow the steps and missteps that most people will tend to follow in real life when solving large problems. And that was how I generated my structure. Now, it's funny. So 13 of my 14 main steps in my structure apply to that. There's one that doesn't, and it's the one that was, it's necessary to solve a paradox of storytelling. And that paradox is the break into Act 3. I, I don't refer to X1, 2, and 3. I talk about the four quarters of your story. But the move from the third quarter of your story to the fourth quarter of your story, or as it's usually referred to by screenwriters, the break from Act 2 into Act 3, then we all know that the hero is supposed to be proactive at that point, right? Supposed to have a proactive hero. The hero has realized what his problem is, realized what the problem in his world is. He's confronted his flaw, and now he's ready to take on the world. He's ready to bring the fight to the bad guy. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. But do we actually want in the final quarter of the story, do we actually want the hero to just show up at the bad guy's house and beat him up? No, we don't want that. So this is a paradox. Like if we want the hero to take the fight to the, if we want the hero to have changed enough as a person and to have gone through the personal transformation necessary to now say, I'm ready to show up at the hero's house and beat him up. But then we don't actually want to see that happen. So what happens? Why, why is the hero giving the writer, why is the audience giving the writer conflicting signals here? And of course it all comes down to Star Wars. And you read my mind. You read my mind. In the original cut of Star Wars, that's exactly what happened at the end. Is they're like, we have the plans to the Death Star, and we're going to just show up at the hero's front door and beat him up. We're going to find the Death Star wherever it is in the middle of the galaxy. We're going to fly there. We're going to 
shoot, we're going to shoot at the flaw in the Death Star and we're going to blow it up. And nobody liked the movie. George Lucas was showing this movie to people and they were ashamed. They were like, oh, George, oh, I'm so sorry. Well, you know, maybe the next one will work out for you. You know, this one's just, it's not working. And George did uh, the number one thing that everybody should do. He went back to his wife and he said, uh, honey, why isn't this working? And she said, let me fix it for you. And she said, well, duh, your problem is it's good that your heroes now have the information they need. They've got what they need to defeat the bad guys. But then the bad guys show up on their doorstep. And she just re-edited the movie and redubbed the movie and shot new insert shots to create an entire storyline that was not there in the original film of, okay, yes, we now have the plans to blow up the Death Star, but then the Death Star shows up to blow us up before we can go there to blow them up. And they are about to blow us up. And, you know, you look at this in suddenly once you see this, you see it everywhere. So that is you see it everywhere that, oh, you know, I have personally transformed and become a proactive person. But then the timeline gets unexpectedly moved up and suddenly they're here. So that is the one step in my structure where it's like, okay, that one is there to address the paradox. That is, you know, because in but it does tend to happen in real life anyway. You know, it does. It doesn't happen. The yeah. timeline does tend to get moved up, but it doesn't. But that's not necessarily something that's based on real life. It's not that the timeline always gets moved and always gets moved up in real life, although that does tend to happen. You know, I talk about in my structure how, you know, I would I would sit there and I'd be like, OK, I need to master this structure and I need to do this, you know, this writing job that I've just gotten. And I would go like, OK, so I think I've mastered the structure. Here I'm going to do the writing job. OK, first thing I'm going to do when I do the writing job is I'm going to. I'm going to sell them a pitch. They're going to like the pitch, you know, for how I'm going to adapt their novel. And then I'm going to come up with my beat sheet. I'm, I've got the beat sheet and I'm going to pitch it to them and they like the beat sheet. They go, that's good. Write it exactly the way it is on your beat sheet and you'll make a million bucks. We'll make a million bucks. We're all going to get rich. And then you sit down and you're like, and they tell you, okay, you have to turn in the screenplay in six weeks. And you're like, this is fine. That means I just have to write like three pages a day. It's going to be beautiful. And then you're writing your pages every day. You're writing your scenes. And then you get halfway through and you realize this beat sheet that I sold them that they love, it sucks. Like it is, you know, I have, my plans have unraveled. And I now realize that this beautiful plan I have, I have to throw out the window and I have to start over, even though I, this is what they told me to do, even though this is the approved plan, I have to rebeat this thing against the rules and outlaw rebeat that I have to do uh, in order to actually write something that's going to be good. And then I'm going to have to sell this to them, the mm-hmm. sell them the thing they don't want, and it's going to work. And I realized like, okay, this is what happens when I would get hired to write screenplays. And it's also what happens in screenplays, because this is proof of what I was saying, that the story structure is the structure of how you solve problems in real life. The when you're writing your story structure and you're creating a beat sheet of your story structure, you will end up following the same storyline where you will end up having to, in any good movie, they throw out the map halfway through. Mm-hmm. They get to the halfway point and they're like, okay, crumple up these plans, throw them out. We're proactive now. We're improving. We're having to solve this problem from scratch. And this exact same thing will happen to you. Ironically, when you're trying to write it, you will get halfway through and you'll crumple up your beat sheet. You'll throw it out. You're like, oh, my God, I am winging it from now on. I am running from scratch. And if you don't do that, it's going to be terrible. If you just write the exact pitch that you sold them, yeah. it's going to be terrible. 
Now, one th- one thing I wanted to ask you is something that I guess does not get talked about very much in in screenwriting in general, and I'd love to hear your, t- your take on it. Tone. Can you yes. discuss tone because tone is so so important. You know, if it's just so important, especially to all the great movies have good tone or have appropriate tone. And if and if you can master tone, then you're set. Because if you can, you know, tone is about setting expectations. And if you can set the audience's expectations, if you can tell them like, okay, here's what to expect from me. Here's what I think you should expect. Here's what I think you should want. Then and then they want it, and then you give it to them. Then they will have no idea that you are a master manipulator who has tricked them into liking this story that they would not actually have liked. That they would have had, you know. I always say the ultimate example of tone is go back. I'm going to re-edit Star Wars, and I'm just going to change one thing. I'm going to take off the opening frames of the movie, and so now instead of saying "Once upon a time in a galaxy far, far away." No, what, I'm sorry. What does it say? Yeah, uh, a long time ago. A long time ago, ago in a galaxy, galaxy far, far a long, away. A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. And I'm going to take that title card off the front of the movie. And instead, I'm going to put a title card that says, it is the year 25,193. And then, boom. And then you have the whole rest of the movie. The movie would suck. The movie <laughs> would suck if, if Star Wars was not set a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, but it was set in the year 25,193. Then we would go, okay, so this is a science fiction movie, and this is going to follow the rules of a science fiction movie. So they are going to – we're going to be dealing with explosive decompression every time that uh, an airlock is opened. We're going to be dealing with supercomputers that have been programmed to take over the world. No sound sound in space? (laughs) No sound in space. Of course not. No sound in space. No explosions. (laughs) And then you're going to be watching this movie – and you're going like, this is not the year 25,000. We've got wizards. We've got princesses. We've got, you know, we've got storming the castle. We've got all these things. <laughs> and this is a fairy tale. This is a story that should be said a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. And you, you have not delivered the story that you promised to deliver. And that is tone. You know, I think that 90, if you're not a screenwriter and you're watching that movie, you're like, oh, well, that's sort of funny that it says it's set a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. And you won't realize what that is doing for you, that that is solving the movie's problems by establishing that tone, that that is saying like, no, not, it's not what you think it is. It's something else. It's my thing. Let me tell you what my thing is going to be. And I talk about, you know, I when I break up tone, I talk about with tone, you know, so the first part of tone is genre, establishing your genre, establishing your subgenre. That was what that title card was all about, establishing like, no, 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 no. This isn't what you're expecting in sci-fi. This is a subgenre. I talk about how satisfying genre expectations, how you've got to satisfy some genre expectations, but not a lot of genre expectations. I talk a lot about on my blog about Game of Thrones and about how Game of Thrones, you know, they satisfied just enough genre expectations. And then they just didn't satisfy so many of them. First of all, they kept killing off the hero. They're like, oh, by the way, Ned Stark's the hero. No, 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 wait, he's dead. Okay, now Rob Stark's the hero. No, 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 wait, he's dead. So that was all about upsetting expectations. But man, if you love fantasy, you still love that series. And it's it's if you don't love fantasy, I mean, that that's the, the dream is Game of Thrones. Because if you love fantasy, you love that series – 
And if you don't love fantasy, you'll love that series. And that if you can satisfy the fans of the genre enough so that they're the ones who bought that book for the first 10 years of Game of Thrones existing, only fantasy fans, only fantasy fans bought it and read it. And I don't know if you knew any of these people, but these people kept going to people who weren't fantasy fans going like, oh, my God, you have to read these books. They're amazing. And not fantasy fans are like going, forget it. I'm not going to read these big, thick fantasy books. Like, I am a serious human being. I am an adult. I do not read big, thick fantasy books. And all the fantasy fans, it was driving them crazy because they're like, no, you will love it. It is literature. It is great. It is entertainment and literature and everything. And so that is such a big part of it. I talk about framing. I talk about, obviously, the dramatic question is something that screenwriting people talk about a lot. How, you know, establishing what the dramatic question is, establishing what the, what what you're going to address at the end and what you're not going to address and when it's going to be over and when it's not going to be over. You know, Star Wars is not about toppling the Empire. And if you got no. to the end of Star Wars and right. you're like, what, the Empire's still standing. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. You know, this movie sucks. <laughs> that would be... That would be bad. They have to, you know, they establish the demand question right away in the stories. They're like, we have to get we we have to get these plans to the rebels in order to because we have a plan for how to blow up the Death Star. We got a plan for the Death Star. We have to get it to the rebels, and then we're going to blow up the Death Star. And that's what this movie is about. And yes, you know, they don't even kill off Darth Vader. They leave it a little unclear about whether he's dead, but they don't even clear off Darth Vader, and they don't. They certainly don't. You know conquer the galaxy and they have to establish their dramatic question right away. I talk about framing sequences. I talk about um, parallel characters are great. If you, every time your character meets a nut, you know, your character should be constantly meeting characters that are like, Oh, I could end up like that. I could, this is the extreme version of what I'm thinking about being like, Oh my God, this, this person I'm on the verge of becoming, do I really want to become like that? Look at this other character. Or if I don't do it, look at this other character who ended up dead. And that so, is a great way of establishing expectations. If you establish like, oh, my God, look at all these people. I could be this person. I want to be this person. I don't want to be this person who, you know, who tragically ended up dead because they didn't do the right thing or because they did do the right thing. What am I going to be? What is that? So it's like, are you going to be Darth Vader or are you going to be Obi-Wan if you're Luke? That's the that's the question, because you can go either way uh, towards or are the- you going to be Han? Are you gonna or, Are you or, gonna reject the force? The yeah, way Han does exactly. So there's there's that as opposed to the pre, the prequels, you know, which have <laughs> have have their place. But Anakin um, had the choice of becoming Yoda or or <laughs> or becoming who he or becoming the Emperor, essentially, and he chose poorly. If I may uh, use an <laughs> Indiana Jones term, um, he chose poorly. Um, but we could sit here. I, no, there's a whole episode. There's a whole episode that you and I could sit down and just deconstruct the tr- the prequels. <laughs> let's just piss all over the prequels for the rest of this podcast. Let's no, 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 no. just because nobody's done that. You know, nobody. No, I'm sure no one. No, no. Jar Jar Binks is the genius. first people to I think Jar Jar piss all over is, the sequels. I think Jar Jar Binks is a genius character. What are you talking about? Uh, <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> but this with is all, awkward. Okay, you know what? But with all that said, when you saw the trailer. For Phantom Menace. Oh my God! Don't tell me you didn't. I worked in a movie theater, I... and we could watch it over and over. 
Uh, and we did. And trust me, I we all drank that Kool-Aid. And when we walked in, I promise you, when you walked out of Phantom Menace, because you're <laughs> you're of the similar generation as, as I was. You're close to my 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 vintage, sir. You walked out of Phantom Menace and said, Oh my God, that was amazing. The Padre. I mean, I, I did. I did. And then I did not. You did not. You did, did not, not like it. You didn't like it. You're like, I, mean, I, I did I, not like it. So you didn't drink I the I, I, I drank full Kool Aid. I was in I drank shock. Full, I drank full Kool Aid on that one. But then I watched <laughs> I it with not. I watched it with my daughter a year or two ago. Just to introduce her. She's like, Well, let me see the you know, Anakin. I'm like, all right, we'll watch Anakin. So we watched Phantom Menace. And I could barely watch it. It was so bad. It was so yeah. So, I mean, great action sequences, great lightsaber battle, great pod race. That, that was fun, but it was mind numbing. It was it was really bad. But anyway, it's really bad. I, like so I said, like of, you said earlier, like you said earlier, we're not the first to discuss the prequels <laughs> on the internet. Um, now, no. before before we go, uh, I'm going to ask you a few questions. I ask all of my guests: What are three screenplays that every screenwriter should read? Oh man! See, I I listened to some of your old episodes, and I remember hearing you ask that, and I thought, oh, okay, I should I should make sure that I uh, that I have my <laughs> answers ready, and I don't. You know, a really underrated screenplay. When I was in film school, at one point, they were throwing out a bunch of old issues of Screenplay Magazine, and that would always print four screenplays in the back. And I grabbed one. I'm like, hey, that's a good screenplay. I'll pick it up and read it. And I thought, just on the page, one of my all time favorite screenplays is Donnie Brasco by Paul oh, Atanasio. Oh, it's great. Great. Great movie and just brilliantly written on the page. And there's never been a better monologue in film history than the forget about it monologue uh, where they're talking about um, all the different uh, all the different meanings of the phrase forget about it. I think that that is an absolutely brilliant screenplay. You know, if you're talking about my all time favorite movie, you know, that's Harold and Maude. And I feel like that is a perfect screenplay as well. And an absolutely um, absolutely brilliant, absolutely heartbreaking. You know, there is no better ending, I think, in film than the ending in that film. Um, let's see. What we, oh, it's so hard to choose. It's so hard to choose. There's. So I mean, Spaceballs. Spaceballs, obviously. Well, obviously, <laughs> Spaceballs. Oh my God! On my on my own podcast, I just found out that my 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 uh, co-host has never seen Blazing Saddles. Oh. Always, just always just assumed it's bad and has never seen it. So I'm going to say, so in honor of him, I'm going to say Blazing Saddles for the third one. Although, of course, let me tell you all right now, don't write Blazing Saddles today. <laughs> you, we'll would, never, you would get a fair amount of ever. trouble for trying to do that. I, when I saw, I saw Blazing Saddles when I was in the video, working at the video store in, in high school. I saw Blazing Saddles. And at that point, I said, in the late 80s, early 90s, I'm like, how did this movie get made? Like, even <laughs> then, I was like, it was not nearly as taboo as it is today. And you watch it and you just like, I can't believe he got away with it. And I'm like, there'll never be another movie to do something like this. And then Borat came out. I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That was, and that was the last one. And nothing like Borat has, has, has ever come back on screen <laughs> since then. But those two specifically, they just pushed that envelope so, so much. Good, good choices. Good choices. Now, what advice would you give a screenwriter wanting to break into the business today? Well, here is 
you know, let me, can I just, uh, you know, I was thinking like, oh, he's going to ask me about business stuff and that's not really my, my brand. But then I was like, you know, I do have, because it's not my brand, I do have stuff to say about business that I haven't said a million times before in a million other podcasts. Can I talk about the number one thing I wish that I had heard before I had my heat and I was selling? Yes. And that is what happens in a meeting. Okay. Um, if you're on the couch and water tour, if you're uh, going around yes. and bottles couches, you're getting them, you're, they're getting you water. Here are the things <laughs> I didn't understand. The first thing I didn't understand is that this meeting is a constellation prize. You are getting this meeting because your manager or agent sent you, sent them your screenplay. They loved it, but they decided not to buy it. And they said, as a consolation prize, we're going to meet with the guy. So if they had loved your screenplay, I always thought in like, oh, they asked me to meet. That means they love my screenplay. That means they're going to buy it. And I would go in like, oh, I would go in there like, hey, you know, we're here to talk about how you're buying my screenplay. And I would have this heartbreak every time of like, what? You're not even, why are you meeting with me if you're not even going to buy it? Because this is a consolation prize. So that's the first thing. And is that they've read it. They loved it, but they decided not to buy it. They asked to meet with you instead. And then as a result, there's three phases to a meeting. And this took me forever to learn. And that's the first phase is you talk about the thing that they read of yours and they loved and they decided not to buy. And you maybe can talk them into buying in any way, but you've got to be very clear that that's not what you're doing. Like you understand that they loved it, that they're not going to buy it and that you're not doing. But, you know, you're subtly going like, eh, maybe you should have bought it. Maybe you should have made more for my agent or manager. So that's phase one. So there's three phases of a meeting. Phase one is talk about the thing that they read of yours that they liked and maybe try to convince them to buy it after all. Phase two is open assignments. Hopefully your agent or manager has asked them in advance what open assignments does this production company have that uh, that they are looking to hire writers for. What novels have they optioned that then they couldn't get anybody to crack? What uh, what you know idea crazy ideas this producer have that he's trying to hire some screenwriter to do? That you want to find out what are your open assignments and you want to pitch them on what the open assignments are. Hopefully you've found out in advance what the open assignments are and you've prepared a pitch in advance. And then step three is you're going to pitch them on your new one. And you're going to pitch them like, then they're going to ask, so what are you working on? And you're going to say, oh, I'm working on, you know, oh, it's about a cow who goes back to ancient France. You're working on whatever you're working on and you're going to pitch them. But that's the least likely thing that's going to come out of it is they're just going to buy a wild pitch from you. And because here is... The number one thing I learned from selling and more importantly, from not selling. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And I have never gotten into reading a bunch of sales books. And I'm sure there are sales books out there that say this, but I've never encountered one. And to me, this is the number one lesson of sales. And that is that do not sell them what you came to sell, sell them what they came to buy. Ooh, when you good. are meeting with, that's good. When you are meeting with a buyer, they, the only reason anybody ever meets with a salesman, and that's what you are, you're a salesman. The only reason why anybody ever meets with a salesman is if they have to buy, is if they are in trouble and they are out of product and they need new product and they're going to get fired if they don't buy new product. That's their whole job is to gather up new product and they're out of product. They're running out. They're in a panic. They need to buy. But they're not going to buy what you came to sell. They're going to buy what they came to buy. And they know that dynamic. You don't. If you're just a young, dumb screenwriter, you don't know that yet. But once you have figured that out, 
then the game begins. You're playing a game. You're playing cat and mouse where you are trying to trick them into telling you what they came to buy. And they are trying to hold their cards close to the vest. And they're, they they want to hear your pitch and see if it's what they came to buy. They don't want to accidentally reveal to you the secret of what they have come to buy because then you will pounce and pitch that to them. And this is true of if you're writing, you know, if you're writing specs, this is true if you are writing, um, this is true if you are doing adaptations. If you're pitching your take on a novel so that you can get hired to do the adaptation, here's the biggest adaptation I ever got hired to write. Here's how I did it, because uh, I had learned this at this point. And I said, oh, you know, this is an amazing novel, and it's going to be so tricky to adapt, because you could either go this way with it, or you could go this way with it. And then I shut up. And I said, oh, it's so tricky. You can go this way with it, you can go this way with it. Silence. Awkward silence. Awkward silence. And they're like, yeah, well, obviously, yeah, you got to do A. And I'm like, exactly. Yes, you got to do option A. <laughs> and then I pitched them option A. Now, I, if they had said option B, I would have pitched them option B. But you have That's to great. trick them That's great. into telling you what they came to buy. You know, the same thing is true. You know, there's a great story uh, that um, Simon Kinberg told me uh, at Columbia because he went to Columbia and then he came back to talk to some of the people there. And he talked about how, you know, his agent was like, I'm going to set you, get you set up. You're going to be pitching to Universal. They want to hear horror pitches. And he, of course, is at first thinking, I'm going to sell them when I came to sell. I've got a great horror movie. It's great. I know it's great. They're going to love it. I'm going to, I've got a half hour pitch for this great horror movie. Goes in, pitches it. They're like, no. He's like, oh crap. He says, well, I've got in the back of my head, I've got some 10 minute pitches for other good horror movies. Pitches, three 10 minute pitches. They're like, no. He's like, well, I've got some uh, five minute pitches. I'll try some of those. No, shoot them all down. He's like, well, this brings me down to, I've got six different one line pitches, you know, or just titles. And he starts pitching those. And then he gets to his final pitch. He says, I just got two words, ghost town. And they say, sold a million dollars. Boom. Here's the check. <laughs> and then he and then he said, and of course, this movie never got paid. And then, of course, after he had cashed the check and he was like, you know, gee, you know, the other things I pitched you were so developed and they had these brilliant, you know, twists and characters and and, mm -hmm. and everything that a story is supposed to have. Ghost Town didn't have any of that. Watch by Ghost Town. They're like, well, what we really wanted is we wanted a horror movie that could be turned into a attraction at Universal Studios Hollywood and Universal Studios Orlando. And all your other movies you pitched us couldn't be turned into attractions at Universal Studios Orlando. But as soon as you said Ghost Town, oh, it's a movie about an evil ghost town. It's a movie about a haunted ghost town. And boom, we know how to do that. We know how to build a ghost town at Universal Studios. And he, <laughs> they and they did not tell him that at the beginning of the meeting. They did not tell him what they had come to buy because they know they are more sophisticated than you are. They know that – if you are sophisticated, that if they tell you what they came to buy, then you're going to go, oh, well, what a coincidence. That's what I came to sell. So they know not to tell you what they came to buy, but they know in their heads they they have come because they need to buy Universal. That executive at Universal was told, you have to do what nobody likes to do, which is you have to meet with salesmen. Nobody in the world wants to meet with a salesman. Right. But you have to go out and meet with a bunch of salesmen because we're out of material. We don't we need to build a new attraction at Universal Studios theme park. It's got to be based on one of our movies. None of our movies can be turned into attractions at Universal Studios theme park. We've got to meet with some people, but let's not tell them what we want. 
Let's not tell them what we came to buy and let's hope that they have something to sell that happens to be what we want to buy. And your job as a screenwriter is to figure out what they came to buy and sell it to them. That is uh, one of the best answers to that question <laughs> we've ever had. Now, where can people um, find out about you and, and, and your work and what you're doing? So uh, first and foremost, you can find my book, The Secrets of Story, Innovative Tools for Perfecting Your Fiction and Captivating Readers. You can listen to uh, my podcast, The Secret Story Podcast. You can watch my YouTube channel, The Secrets of Story YouTube channel. You can hire me to do manuscript consultation. Uh, go to thesecretsofstory.com. Oh, I should say you could read my blog at thesecretsofstory.com, and you could click on the top button on the upper right and click on manuscript consultation, and you can hire me to do that. And also, if you want to come homeschool my kids, then <laughs> you can trade services then i can trade services with you and you're just gonna have to wear a hazmat suit and homeschool my kids and then i'll do anything for you i'll paint your house <laughs> fair enough matt it's been an absolute pleasure having you in your show man thank you so much for uh, being on the show and dropping those knowledge bombs on the tribe today man thank you so much thank you so much for having me this has been a lot of fun I want to thank Matthew for coming on the show and dropping major, major knowledge bombs on the Bulletproof Screenwriting Tribe today. Thank you again, Matthew. If you want to read his book or check out his work, head over to the show notes at IndieFilmWelso.com forward slash 669. And if you haven't already, please head over to FilmmakingPodcast.com, subscribe and leave a good review for the show. It really helps us out a lot, guys. Thank you again so much for listening, guys. As always, keep that hustle going. Keep that dream alive. Stay safe out there, and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Indie Film Hustle podcast at IndieFilmHustle.com. That's I-N-D-I-E-F-I-L-M-H-U-S-T-L-E.com.